This is Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. This is the first of three parts of chapter three entitled The Color of Justice. Imagine you were Emma Faye Stewart, a 30-year-old single African-American mother of two who was arrested as part of a drug sweep in Hearn, Texas. All but one of the people arrested were African-American. You are innocent. After a week in jail, you have no one to care for your two small children and are eager to get home. Your court-appointed attorney urges you to plead guilty to a drug distribution charge, saying the prosecutor has offered probation. You refuse, steadfastly proclaiming your innocence. Finally, after almost a month in jail, you decide to plead guilty so you can return home to your children. Unwilling to risk a trial in years of imprisonment, you are sentenced to 10 years probation and ordered to pay $1,000 in fines, as well as court and probation costs. You are also now branded a drug felon. You are no longer eligible for food stamps, you may be discriminated against in employment, you cannot vote for at least 12 years, and you are about to be evicted from public housing. Once homeless, your children will be taken from you and put in foster care. A judge eventually dismisses all cases against the defendants who did not plead guilty. At trial, the judge finds that the entire sweep was based on the testimony of a single informant who lied to the prosecution. You, however, are still a drug felon, homeless, and desperate to regain custody of your children. Now place yourself in the shoes of Clifford Reynolds, another African-American victim of the Hearn drug bust. You returned home to Bryan, Texas to attend the funeral of your 18-month-old daughter. Before the funeral services begin, the police show up and handcuff you. You beg the officers to let you take one last look at your daughter before she's buried. The police refuse. You were told by prosecutors that you were needed to testify against one of the defendants in a recent drug bust. You deny witnessing any drug transaction. You don't know what they're talking about. Because of your refusal to cooperate, you're indicted on felony charges. After a month of being held in jail, the charges against you are dropped. You are technically free, but as a result of your arrest and period of incarceration, you lose your job, your apartment, your furniture, and your car, not to mention the chance to say goodbye to your baby girl. This is the war on drugs. The brutal stories described above are not isolated incidents, nor are the racial identities of Emma Faye Stewart and Clifford Reynolds, random or accidental. In every state across our nation, African Americans, particularly in the poorest neighborhoods, are subjected to tactics and practices that would result in public outrage and scandal if committed in middle-class white neighborhoods. In the drug war, the enemy is racially defined. The law enforcement methods described in Chapter 2 have been employed almost exclusively in poor communities of color, resulting in jaw-dropping numbers of African Americans and Latinos filling our nation's prisons and jails every year. We are told by drug warriors that the enemy in this war is a thing, drugs, not a group of people, but the facts prove otherwise. Human Rights Watch reported in 2000 that, in seven states, African Americans constitute 80 to 90 percent of all drug offenders sent to prison. In at least 15 states, blacks are admitted to prison on drug charges at a rate from 20 to 57 times higher than that of white men. In fact, nationwide, the rate of incarceration for African American drug offenders dwarfs the rate of whites. When the war on drugs gained full steam in the mid-1980s, prison admissions for African Americans skyrocketed, nearly quadrupling in three years, and then increasing steadily until it reached in 2000 a level more than 26 times the level in 1983. The number of 2000 drug admissions for Latinos was 22 times the number of 1983 admissions. Whites 
have been admitted to prison for drug offenses at increased rates as well. The number of whites admitted for drug offenses in 2000 was eight times the number admitted in 1983. But their relative numbers are small compared to blacks and Latinos. Although the majority of illegal drug users and dealers nationwide are white, three-fourths of all people imprisoned for drug offenses have been black or Latino. In recent years, rates of black imprisonment for drug offenses have dipped somewhat, declining approximately 25% from their zenith in the mid-1990s. But it remains the case that African Americans are incarcerated at grossly disproportionate rates throughout the United States. There is, of course, an official explanation for all of this. Crime rates. This explanation has tremendous appeal, before you know the facts, for it is consistent with and reinforces dominant racial narratives about crime and criminality dating back to slavery. The truth, however, is that rates and patterns of drug crime do not explain the glaring racial disparities in our criminal justice system. People of all races use and sell illegal drugs at remarkably similar rates. If there are significant differences in the surveys to be found, they frequently suggest that whites, particularly white youth, are more likely to engage in illegal drug dealing than people of color. One study, for example, published in 2000 by the National Institute on Drug Abuse reported that white students use cocaine at seven times the rate of black students, use crack cocaine at eight times the rate of black students, and use heroin at seven times the rate of black students. That same survey revealed that nearly identical percentages of white and black high school seniors use marijuana. The National Household Survey on Drug Abuse reported in 2000 that white youth aged 12 to 17 are more than a third more likely to have sold illegal drugs than African-American youth. Thus, the very same year Human Rights Watch was reporting that African-Americans were being arrested and imprisoned at unprecedented rates, government data revealed that blacks were no more likely to be guilty of drug crimes than whites, and that white youth were actually the most likely of any racial or ethnic group to be guilty of illegal drug possession and sales. Any notion that drug use among blacks is more severe or dangerous is belied by the data. White youth have about three times the number of drug-related emergency room visits as their African-American counterparts. The notion that whites comprise the vast majority of drug users and dealers, and may well be more likely than other racial groups to commit drug crimes, may seem implausible to some, given the media imagery we're fed on a daily basis and the racial composition of our prisons and jails. Upon reflection, however, the prevalence of white drug crime, including drug dealing, should not be surprising. After all, where do whites get their illegal drugs? Do they drive to the ghetto to purchase them from somebody standing on a street corner? No. Studies consistently indicate that drug markets, like, Af like American society in general, reflect our nation's racial and socioeconomic boundaries. Whites tend to sell to whites, blacks to blacks. University students tend to sell to each other. Rural whites, for their part, don't make a special trip to the hood to purchase marijuana. They buy it from somebody down the road. White high school students typically buy drugs from white classmates, friends, or older relatives. Even Barry McCaffrey, former director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, once remarked, if your child brought, bought drugs, it was from a student of their own race generally. The notion that most illegal drug use and sales happens in the ghetto is pure fiction. Drug trafficking occurs there, but it occurs everywhere else in America as well. Nevertheless, black men have been admitted to state prison on drug charges at a rate that is more than 13 times higher than white men. The racial bias inherent in the drug war is a major reason that one in every 14 black men was behind bars in 2006, compared with one in every 106 white men. For young black men, the statistics are even worse. 
One in nine black men between the ages of 20 and 35 was behind bars in 2006, and far more were under some form of penal control, such as probation or parole. These gross, gross racial disparities simply cannot be explained by rates of illegal drug activity among African Americans. What then does explain the extraordinary racial disparities in our criminal justice system? Old-fashioned racism seems out of the question. Politicians and law enforcement officials today are rarely endorse racially biased practices, and most of them fiercely condemn racial discrimination of any kind. When accused of racial bias, police and prosecutors, like most Americans, express horror and outrage. Forms of race discrimination that were open and notorious for centuries were transformed in the 1960s and 1970s into something un-American, an affront to our newly conceived ethic of colorblindness. By the early 1980s, surveyed data indicated that 90% of whites thought black and white children should attend the same schools. 71% disagreed with the idea that whites have a right to keep blacks out of their neighborhoods. 80% indicated they would support a black candidate for president. And 66% opposed laws prohibiting intermarriage. Although far fewer supported specific policies designed to achieve racial, racial equality or integration, such as busing, the mere fact that large majorities of whites were, by the early 1980s, supporting the anti-discrimination principle reflected a profound shift in racial attitudes. The margin of support for colorblind norms has only increased since then. This dramatically changed racial climate has led defenders of mass incarceration to insist that our criminal justice system, whatever its past sins, is now largely fair and non-discriminatory. They point to violent crime rates in the African-American community as justification for the staggering number of black men who find themselves behind bars. Black men, they say, have much higher rates of violent crime. That's why so many of them are locked in prisons. Typically, this is where the discussion ends. The problem with this abbreviated analysis is that violent crime is not responsible for the prison boom. As numerous researchers have shown, violent crime rates have fluctuated over the years and bear little relationship to incarceration rates, which have soared during the past three decades, regardless of whether violent crime was going up or down. Today, violent crime rates are historically low levels, yet incarceration rates continue to climb. Murder convictions tend to receive a tremendous amount of media attention, which feeds the public's sense that violent crime is rampant and forever on the rise. But like violent crime in general, the murder rate cannot explain the prison boom. Homicide convictions account for a tiny fraction of the growth in the prison population. In the federal system, for example, homicide offenders account for 0.4% of the past decade's growth in the federal prison population, while drug offenders account for nearly 61% of that expansion. In the state system, less than 3% of new court commitments to state prison typically involve people convicted of homicide as much as a third of state prisoners are violent offenders, but that statistic can easily be misinterpreted. Violent offenders tend to get longer prison sentences than nonviolent offenders and therefore comprise a much larger share of the prison population than they would if they had earlier release dates. The uncomfortable reality is that convictions for drug offenses, not violent crime, are the single most important cause of the prison boom in the United States and that people of color are convicted of drug offenses at rates all out of proportion to their drug crimes. These facts may still leave some readers unsatisfied. The idea that the criminal justice system discriminates in such a terrific fashion when few people openly express or endorse racial discrimination may seem far-fetched, if not absurd. How could the war on drugs operate in a discriminatory manner 
on such a large scale when hardly anyone advocates or engages in explicit race discrimination? That question is the subject of this chapter. As we shall see, despite the colorblind rhetoric and fanfare of recent years, the design of the drug war effectively guarantees that those who are swept into the nation's new undercast are largely black and brown. This sort of claim invites skepticism. Non-racial explanations and excuses for the systematic mass incarceration of people of color are plentiful. It is the genius of the new system of control that can always be defended on non-racial grounds, given the rarity of a noose or a racial slur in connection with any particular criminal case. Moreover, because blacks and whites are almost never similarly situated, given extreme racial segregation and housing and disparate life experiences, trying to control for race in an effort to evaluate whether mass incarceration of people of color is really about race or something else, anything else, is difficult. But it is not impossible. A bit of common sense is overdue in public discussions about racial bias in the criminal justice system. The great debate over whether black men have been targeted by the criminal justice system or unfairly treated in the war on drugs often overlooks the obvious. What is painfully obvious when one steps back from individual cases and specific policies is that the system of mass incarceration operates with stunning efficiency to sweep people of color off the streets, lock them in cages, and then release them into an inferior second-class status. Nowhere is this more true than in the war on drugs. The central question, then, is how exactly does a formally colorblind criminal justice system achieve such racially discriminatory results? Rather easily, it turns out. The process occurs in two stages. The first step is to grant law enforcement officials extraordinary discretion regarding whom to stop, search, arrest, and charge for drug offenses, thus ensuring that conscious and unconscious racial beliefs and stereotypes will be given free reign. Unbridled discretion inevitably creates huge racial disparities. Then, the damning step. Close the courthouse doors to all claims by defendants and private litigants that the criminal justice system operates in racially discriminatory fashion. Despite our demand that anyone who wants to challenge racial bias in the system offer in advance clear proof that racial disparities are the product of intentional racial discrimination, i.e. the work of a bigot. This evidence will almost never be available in the area of colorblindness because everyone knows, but does not say, that the enemy in the war on drugs can be identified by race. This simple design has helped to produce one of the most extraordinary systems of racialized social control the world has ever seen. Picking and Choosing the Role of Discretion Chapter 2 described the first step in some detail including the legal rules that grant police the discretion and authority to stop, interrogate, and search anyone anywhere, provided they get consent from the targeted individual. It also examined the legal framework that affords prosecutors extraordinary discretion to charge or not charge, plea bargain or not, and load up defendants with charges carrying the threat of harsh mandatory sentences in order to force guilty pleas, even in cases in which the defendants may well be innocent. These rules have made it possible for law enforcement agencies to boost dramatically their rates of drug arrests and convictions, even in communities where drug crime is stable or declining. But that is not all. These rules have also guaranteed racially discriminatory results. The reason is this. Drug law enforcement is unlike most other types of law enforcement. When a violent crime or robbery or a trespass occurs, someone usually calls the police. There is a clear victim and a perpetrator. Someone is hurt or harmed in some way and wants the offender punished. 
But with drug crime, neither the purchaser of the drugs nor the seller has any incentive to contact law enforcement. It's a consensual activity. Equally important, it is popular. The clear majority of Americans of all races have violated drug laws in their lifetime. In fact, in any given year, more than 1 in 10 Americans violate drug laws. But due to resource constraints and the politics of the drug war, only a small fraction are arrested, convicted, and incarcerated. In 2002, for example, there were 19.5 million illicit drug users compared to 1.5 million drug arrests and 175,000 people admitted to prison for a drug offense. The ubiquity of illegal drug activity combined with its consensual nature requires a far more proactive approach by law enforcement than what is required to address ordinary street crime. It is impossible for law enforcement to identify and arrest every drug criminal. Strategic choices must be made about whom to target and what tactics to employ. Police and prosecutors did not declare the war on drugs, and some initially opposed it, but once the financial incentives for waging the war became too attractive to ignore, law enforcement agencies had to ask themselves, if we're going to wage this war, where should it be fought and who should be taken prisoner? That question was not difficult to answer given the political and social context. As discussed in Chapter 1, the Reagan administration launched a media campaign a few years after the drug war was announced. In an effort to publicize horror stories involving black crack users and crack dealers in ghetto communities. Although crack cocaine had not yet hit the streets when the war on drug was declared in 1982, its appearance a few years later created the perfect opportunity for the Reagan administration to build support for its new war. Drug use, once considered a private public health matter, was reframed through political rhetoric and media imagery as a grave threat to national order. Jimmy Reeves and Richard Campbell show in their research how the media imagery surrounding cocaine changed as the practice of smoking cocaine came to be associated with poor blacks. Early in the 1980s, the typical cocaine-related story focused on white recreational users who snorted the drug in its powder form. These stories generally relied on news sources associated with the drug treatment industry, such as rehabilitation clinics, and emphasized the possibility of recovery. By 1985, however, as the war on drugs moved into high gear, this frame was supplanted by a new siege paradigm, in which the transgressors were poor, non-white users and dealers of crack cocaine. Law enforcement officials assumed the role of drug experts emphasizing the need for law and order responses, a crackdown on, on those associated with the drug. These findings are consistent with numerous other studies, including a study of network television news from 1990 and 91, which found that a predictable us-against-them frame was used in the news stories, with us being white suburban America and them being black Americans and a few corrupted whites. The media bonanza, inspired by the administration's campaign, solidified in the public imagination the image of the black drug criminal. Although explicitly racial political appeals remained rare, the calls for war at a time when the media was saturated with images of black drug crime left little doubt about who the enemy was in the war on drugs and exactly what he looked like. Jerome Miller, the former executive director of the National Center for Institutions and Alternatives, described the dynamic this way. There are certain code words that allow you to never have to say race, but everybody knows that's what you mean, and crime is one of those. So when we talk about locking up more and more people, what we're really talking about is locking up more and more black men. Another commentator noted, It is unnecessary to speak directly of race today, because speaking about crime is talking about race. Indeed, 
Not long after the drug war was ramped up in the media and political discourse, almost no one imagined that drug criminals could be anything other than black. A survey was conducted in 1995 asking the following question. Would you close your eyes for a second, envision a drug user, and describe that person to me? The startling results were published in the Journal of Alcohol and Drug Education. 95% of the respondents pictured a black drug user, while only 5% imagined other racial groups. These results contrast sharply with the reality of drug crime in America. African Americans constituted only 15% of current drug users in 1995, and they constitute roughly the same percentage today. Whites constituted the vast majority of drug users then and now, but almost no one pictured a white person when asked to imagine what a drug user looked like. The same group of respondents also perceived the typical drug trafficker as black. There's no reason to believe that the survey results would have been any different if police officers or prosecutors, rather than the general public, had been the respondents. Law enforcement officials, no less than the rest of us, have been exposed to the racially charged political rhetoric and media imagery associated with the drug war. In fact, for nearly three decades, news stories regarding virtually all street crime have disproportionately featured African-American offenders. One study suggests that the standard crime news script is so prevalent and so thoroughly racialized that viewers imagine a black perpetrator even when none exists. In that study, 60% of viewers who saw a story with no image falsely recalled seeing one, and 70% of those viewers believed the perpetrator to be African American. Decades of cognitive bias research demonstrates that both unconscious and conscious biases lead to discriminatory actions, even when an individual does not want to discriminate. The quotation commonly attributed to Nietzsche, that there is no in immaculate perception, perfectly captures how cognitive schemas, thought structures, influence what we notice and how the things we notice get interpreted. Studies have shown that racial schemas operate not only as part of conscious rational deliberations, but also automatically, without conscious awareness or intent. One study, for example, involved a video game that placed photographs of white and black individuals holding either a gun or other objects, such as a wallet, soda can, or cell phone, into various photographic backgrounds. Participants were told to decide as quickly as possible whether to shoot the target. Consistent with earlier studies, participants were more likely to mistake a black target as armed when he was not, and mistake a white target as unarmed when in fact he was armed. This pattern of discrimination reflected automatic unconscious thought processes, not careful deliberations. Most striking, perhaps, is the overwhelming evidence that implicit bias measures are disassociated from explicit bias measures. In other words, the fact that you may honestly believe that you are not biased against African Americans and that you may even have black friends or relatives does not mean that you are free from unconscious bias. Implicit bias tests may still show that you hold negative attitudes and stereotypes about blacks, even though you do not believe that you do and do not want to. In the study described above, for example, black participants showed an amount of shooter bias similar to that shown by whites. Not surprisingly, People who have the greatest explicit bias, as measured by self-reported answers to survey questions against a racial group, tend also to have the greatest implicit bias against them, and vice versa. Yet, there is often a weak correlation between degrees of explicit and implicit bias. Many people, who think they are not biased, prove when tested to have relatively high levels of bias. 
Unfortunately, a fairly consistent finding is that punitiveness and hostility almost always increase when people are primed, even subliminally, with images or verbal cues associated with African Americans. In fact, studies indicate that people become increasingly harsh when an alleged criminal is darker and more stereotypically black. They're more lenient when the accused is lighter and appears more stereotypically white. This is true of jurors as well as law enforcement officers. Viewed as a whole, the relevant research by cognitive and social psychologists to date suggests that racial bias in the drug war was inevitable once a public consensus was constructed by political and media elites that drug crime is black and brown. Once blackness and crime, especially drug crime, became conflated in the public consciousness, the criminal black man, as termed by legal scholar Catherine Russell, would inevitably become the primary target of law enforcement. Some discrimination would be conscious and deliberate, as many honestly and consciously would believe that black men deserve extra scrutiny and harsher treatment. Much racial bias, though, would operate unconsciously and automatically, even among law enforcement officers genuinely committed to equal treatment under the law. Whether or not one believes racial discrimination in the drug war was inevitable, it should have been glaringly obvious in the 1980s and 1990s that an extraordinarily high risk of racial bias in the administration of criminal justice was present, given the way in which all crime had been framed in the media and in political discourse. Awareness of this risk did not require intimate familiarity with cognitive bias research. Anyone possessing a television set during this period would likely have had some awareness of the extent to which black men had been demonized in the war on drugs. The risk that African Americans would be unfairly targeted should have been of special concern to the U.S. Supreme Court, the one branch of government charged with the responsibility of protecting discrete and insular minorities from the, the excesses of majoritarian democracy and not guaranteeing constitutional rights for groups deemed unpopular uh, I'm sorry, and guaranteeing constitutional rights for groups deemed unpopular or subject to prejudice. Yet, when the time came for the Supreme Court to devise the legal rules that would govern the war on drugs, the court adopted rules that would maximize, not minimize, the amount of racial discrimination that would likely occur. It then closed the courthouse doors to claims of racial bias. Wren versus United States is a case in point. As noted in Chapter 2, the court held in Wren that police officers are free to use minor traffic violations as an excuse to stop motorists for drug investigations, even when there is no evidence whatsoever that the motorist has engaged in a drug crime. So long as a minor traffic violation, such as failing to use a turn signal, exceeding the speed limit by a mile or two, tracking improperly between the lines, or stopping on a pedestrian walkway can be identified, Police are free to stop motorists for the purpose of engaging in a fishing expedition for drugs. Such police conduct, the court concluded, does not violate the Fourth Amendment's ban on unreasonable searches and seizures. For good reason, the petitioners in Wren argued that granting police officers such broad discretion to investigate virtually anyone for drug crimes created, uh, created a high risk that police would exercise their discretion in a racially discriminatory manner. With no requirement that any evidence of drug activity actually be present before launching a drug investigation, police officers snap judgments regarding who seems like a drug criminal would likely be influenced by prevailing racial stereotypes and bias. They urge the court to prohibit the police from stopping motorists for the purpose of drug investigations unless the officers actually had reason to believe 
a motorist was committing or had committed a drug crime. Failing to do so, they argued, was unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment and would expose African Americans to a high risk of discriminatory stops and searches. Not only did the court reject the petitioner's central claim that using traffic stops as a pretext for drug investigations is unconstitutional, it ruled that claims of racial bias could not be brought under the Fourth Amendment. In other words, the court barred any victim of race discrimination by the police from even alleging a claim of racial bias under the Fourth Amendment. According to the court, whether or not police discriminate on the basis of race when making traffic stops is irrelevant to a consideration of whether their conduct is reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. The court did offer one caveat, however. It indicated that victims of race discrimination could still state a claim under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal treatment under the laws. This suggestion may have been reassuring to those unfamiliar with the court's equal protection jurisprudence, but for those who had actually tried to prove race discrimination under the 14th Amendment, the court's remark amounted to cruel irony. As we shall see below, the Supreme Court has made it virtually impossible to challenge the racial bias in the criminal justice system under the 14th Amendment. It has barred litigation of such claims under federal civil rights laws as well. Closing the courthouse doors, McCluskey versus Kemp. First, consider sentencing. In 1987, when media hysteria regarding black drug crime was at a fever pitch and the evening news was saturated with images of black criminals shackled in courtrooms, the Supreme Court ruled in McCluskey v. Kemp that racial bias in sentencing, even if shown through credible statistical evidence, could not be challenged under the 14th Amendment in the absence of clear evidence of conscious discriminatory intent. On its face, the case appeared to be a straightforward challenge to George's death penalty scheme. Once the court's opinion was released, however, it became clear the case was about much more than the death penalty. The real issue at hand was whether and to what extent the Supreme Court would tolerate racial bias in the criminal justice system as a whole. The court's answer was that racial bias would be tolerated, virtually to any degree, so long as no one admitted it. Warren McCluskey was a black man facing the death penalty for killing a white police officer during an armed robbery in Georgia. Represented by the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, McCluskey challenged his death sentence on the grounds that Georgia's death penalty scheme was infected with racial bias and thus violated the 14th and 8th Amendments. In support of his claim, he offered an exhaustive study of more than 2,000 murder cases in Georgia. The study was shown as the Baldus Study, or was known as the Baldus Study, named after Professor David Baldus, who was its lead author. The study found that defendants charged with killing white victims received the death penalty 11 times more than defendants charged with killing black victims. Georgia prosecutors seemed largely to blame for the disparity. They sought the death penalty in 70% of cases involving black defendants and white victims, but only 19% of cases involving white defendants and black victims. Sensitive to the fact that numerous factors besides race can influence the decision-making of prosecutors, judges, and juries, Baldus and his colleagues subjected the raw data to highly sophisticated statistical analysis to see if non-racial factors might explain the disparities. Yet even after accounting for 35 non-racial variables, 
The researchers found that defendants charged with killing white victims were 4.3 times more likely to receive a death sentence than the defendants charged with killing blacks. Black defendants, like McCluskey, who killed white victims, had the highest chance of being sentenced to death in Georgia. The case was closely watched by criminal lawyers and civil rights lawyers nationwide. The statistical evidence of discrimination that Baldus had developed was the strongest ever presented to court regarding race and criminal sentencing. If McCluskey's evidence was not enough to prove discrimination in the absence of some kind of racist utterance, what would be? By a one-vote margin, the court rejected McCluskey's claims under the 14th Amendment, insisting that unless McCluskey could prove that the prosecutor in his particular case had sought the death penalty because of race, or that the jury had imposed it for racial reasons, the statistical evidence of race discrimination in Georgia's death penalty system did not prove unequal treatment under the law. The court accepted the statistical evidence as valid, but insisted that evidence of conscious racial bias in McCluskey's individual case was necessary to prove unlawful discrimination. In the absence of such evidence, patterns of discrimination, even patterns as shocking as demonstrated by the Baldus study, did not violate the 14th Amendment. In erecting this high standard, the court knew full well that the standard could not be met absent an admission that the prosecutor or judge acted because of racial bias. The majority opinion openly acknowledged that long-standing rules generally bar litigants from obtaining a discovery from the prosecution regarding changing patterns, charging patterns and motives, and that similar rules forbid introduction of evidence of jury deliberations, even when a juror has chosen to make deliberations public. The very evidence that the court demanded in McCleskey, evidence of deliberate bias in his individual case, would almost always be unavailable and or inadmissible due to procedural rules that shield jurors and prosecutors from scrutiny. This dilemma was of little concern to the court. It closed the courthouse doors to claims of racial bias in sentencing. There is good reason to believe that, despite appearances, the McCleskey decision was not really about the death penalty at all. Rather, the court's opinion was driven by the desire to immunize the entire criminal justice system from claims of racial bias. The best evidence in support of this view can be found at the end of the majority opinion, where the court states that discretion plays a necessary role in the implementation of the criminal justice system, and that discrimination is an inevitable byproduct of discretion. Racial discrimination, the court seemed to suggest, was something that simply must be tolerated in the criminal justice system, provided no one admits to racial bias. The majority observed that significant racial disparities had been found in other criminal settings beyond the death penalty, and that McCleskey's case implicitly calls into question the integrity of the entire system. In the court's words, taken to its logical conclusion, Warren McCleskey's claim throws into serious question the principles that underlie our criminal justice system. If we accept in McCleskey's claim that racial bias has permissibly tainted the capital sentencing decision, we would soon be faced with similar claims as to other types of penalty. The court openly worried that other actors in the criminal justice system might also face scrutiny for allegedly biased decision-making if similar claims of racial bias in the system were allowed to proceed. 
Driven by these concerns, the court rejected McCleskey's claim that Georgia's death penalty system violates the Eighth Amendment's ban on arbitrary punishment, framing this critical question as whether the Baldus study demonstrated a constitutionally unacceptable risk of discrimination. The answer was no. The court deemed the risk of racial bias in Georgia's capital sentencing scheme constitutionally acceptable. Justice Brennan pointedly noted in his dissent that the court's opinions seemed to suggest a fear of too much justice. 